It's wonderful worship. We appreciate you very much. That last line that you saw, the lifter of my head, that comes out of the psalm, Psalm 3, 3. I don't know if you know the origin of that. The lifter of my head was the person who went after a battle, after troops had been put to the ground. The lifter of the head was the one who would go through and lift the head of each of their people and see if they were still alive. And if they were, they would redeem them. They would save them and take them back. So the Lord is the lifter of our head. Though we appear dead, he will lift us up. He will save us. Isn't that cool? And I was touched by it because Tommy is my friend. Um, I was having breakfast with him two weeks ago. He's just a, a, a fun guy. I mean, we tease each other mercilessly. He's a former Army Ranger, and he's a great communicator. He's going to be doing our men's retreat next fall. And, uh, and so that news hit me pretty hard. I texted him because that's how we communicate. I thought if he gets this, if I get a response, that'll be an encouragement to me. Uh, because the news we were getting back about him being in the hospital and transferred to Harborview, you never want to hear that someone's been transferred to Harborview. And uh, so uh, I sent a text to him saying, just praying for you, how are you? And I got a response back later that night. He said, 50% of the people that have this die or are impaired, uh, neurologically impaired. My doctor says that I am neurologically intact. It was just a miracle. Yeah. I couldn't help myself. I responded back, well, Tommy, neurologically intact for you is a pretty low bar, so let's just... (laughs) I know, it's awful. I'm really awful. So I'm going to pass something out for you. I'm going to give one of these to each section. Pass them around. They're very tiny. They're very precious. They're very old. So don't drop it. Last night, Brian dropped it. I said I was going to tell who, who did it. Brian dropped it, and we were on our knees with cell phone flashlights trying to find it after the service. It was Brian's first, Sunday, or first Saturday night in worship. I don't know if he'll come back. but <laughs> So take a look at these. Take a look. See what you think they are. Pass it all the way back. Be careful. See what you think they are. If, you're, uh, if you missed last week or if you're visiting with us, we welcome you. Today, you have come, as you already heard from Pastor Megan, into uh, what we are calling, it's a several-week initiative that we're calling Beyond These Walls. And um, this is really one of those momentous watershed moments in the life of our church when we're looking ahead to the next three to five years and say, what now is God calling us to do and be? And uh, and the the, the questions that we really are focusing on are this. Uh, What would it look like if we heard the Lord's call to move to give ourselves away as we have never done before to this community and to our region? What would it look like if we were to move beyond these walls as we never have before? So that's the journey we're on. That's the question we're inviting you to be a part of. And uh, to solicit, to kind of prime the pump, we asked some of our younger theologians a few questions this week. I'd love for you to take a look at this. Spend it off food and give it to the 
for God. Help people? Aren't those great? I think my favorite line was when uh, they asked Jacob there, well, what would you do with a half a million dollars? He said, I'd share it with my family. And then you notice he quickly edited his response. See what he said? Half my family. Now, that family only got four people in it. I, I think his sister just got cut out of the estate. I'm not sure, but I, I think she's, she's out of there. Um, it's a sweet, uh, a sweet film, but actually this is a real question that your elders have been praying about and, and uh, talking about for the last year. And it's not a theoretical question. You see, our hope is that uh, this initiative beyond these walls will result in a, a sacrificial, heroic uh, effort on the part of the congregation to raise over three years uh, $5 million and to pay off what remains of our debt. Our debt was once nearly $10 million. We've paid it down to $5 million, and we would love to eliminate that. And if we eliminated that debt, we would free up every year $600,000 per year as an annuity that presently goes towards the servicing of that debt. And so our elders have been asking this question of ourselves and of the Lord, what would we do with that money? And here's what our elders have landed on, your elders have landed on. We believe that we are in the point, uh, at a point in the life of our church where we don't need anything more. We, we have a lot. We have more than enough. And we, you know, we feel incredibly blessed. And so if the Lord were to answer our prayers and we were able to do that by the, the sacrificial efforts of our people, our desire would be to take that $600,000 that presently is going into the service of our debt and to pour it into ministry and mission that move beyond our walls into our community, into our world as never before. And we're, so that's what we're calling it, Beyond These Walls. And there are three specific ways that we want to do this. I'm going to unpack this more in the weeks to come, but let me just give you a, a glimpse of it, all right? We're going to be multiplying life groups, releasing leaders, and loving Gig Harbor. We believe the Lord is calling us to multiply the number of life groups that are part of this church and send them out into their neighborhood, into their schools, into their workplaces with the, with the transforming love of Christ. We believe the Lord is calling us to double down on our commitment to raising up, uh, noticing, identifying, training, mentoring, and raising up and releasing ordained pastors and missionary leaders into our denomination, into our country, and into our world. It seems to be a sweet spot for us, and we think the Lord is calling us to to, uh, commit to that, double down on that. And the last thing we, we think is that the Lord is calling us to love Gig Harbor to love Gig Harbor in this region, this peninsula, like we have never done before. Again, I will share more about that in the weeks to come, but let me give you a for instance. A few months ago, we got a call from WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. How many have heard of that organization? Yeah. And by the way, it was, one of, uh, it was a, one, a call from one of five uh, organizations, reputed organiz- re- reputable organizations that want to have significant partnerships with our church that all came in one year. It's a remarkable thing. WIC is, um, what they do, they serve uh, moms, low-income moms, and, and their babies. Uh, they ensure that these moms who may not ordinarily afford the right kind of well baby care and so forth, they, it's a place where they can bring the kids, they can do well baby checkups, they can make sure they're being nourished and cared for in the way that's appropriate regardless of their income. It's a great, minute, it's a great program. It's a national-wide, nationwide program. The WIC said the problem is we have 300 clients 
that are coming from the peninsula across the bridge to us. And those moms cannot afford the gas. A little hot, please. They can't afford the gas or the time uh, or the toll to do that. And we wonder, would you be willing to open a WIC clinic in your church? Would you be willing to remodel your old youth room, for instance, and and let us use that uh, every week? And I said, uh, sounds like a great idea. We can't afford it. We don't have the resources right now. So the answer right now would be no. But here's what I will do. We will loan to you our adult ed space on the other end of the building for a year. Let's get started on this, and let's see what the Lord does to raise up the resources to provide a more permanent space for you. I said, there's one condition that you'll allow us to have our brochures out there, our ministry materials out there, that you will welcome the opportunity for our people to interact with these moms as they are coming through our doors. If, If that's okay, then we're in. They said, we would love that. And imagine that then, these moms uh, who have maybe a a religious background, maybe no religious background, maybe they're anti-religion. Nevertheless, they're going to come to Chapel Hill to make sure that their babies are being cared for. And in the process, they're going to be exposed to people who love Jesus and will love them. Well, June 1st, the Chapel Hill Wick Clinic will open its doors. I think that's awesome. And for a pro-life church like Chapel Hill, that's an opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth and our hearts are, right? So this is just one example. When I talk about our desire to find new ways to reach out into our community and into the peninsula as we never have before, to love Gig Harbor as never before, this is the sort of thing that I'm talking about. And uh, our church, I said this last week, and if you didn't hear the message last week, This is one of those I really hope you'll go back and download the podcast because it it lays the foundation for everything else we're going to be doing. So please consider doing that. But as I shared last week, there is no church in Gig Harbor that has been more blessed over our 55 years in our existence than, than, than than Chapel Hill. I mean, the Lord has poured out bounty and blessing and resources and people and opportunities on us as, as he has no other church. And your elders believe then that we are at a point where we need to say, okay, it's time to turn that back around and pour back into our community in ways that we have never done before, to pour resources and leadership into our community as never before. And here's what's really encouraging for me. Apparently, y'all agree. Because with the launch of the, the initiative last week, I've got to tell you, the buzz, the encouragement, the reports, the people coming up afterwards... I have never been more encouraged about a giving initiative than I am in this. And I've done a lot of giving initiatives. But this, this has been a terrific and enthusiastic and encouraging uh, response. I suppose in some way you might say, how, how can you find fault with it? I mean, it's a pretty compelling vision, isn't it? <clears throat> We're going <clears> to, <throat> pardon me. We're going to get rid of our debt. We're going to become debt-free. And then the the resources that we free up by not having that debt, we're going to pour into ministry and missions that move outside of our doors. I mean, it it can't be more Christ-honoring and and selfless than that kind of a vision. So I'm really encouraged that uh, you're excited about paying off these walls and then moving beyond them. I, I think that's a great idea. Beyond these walls, making disciples that make history. Let me just talk about that last part of the phrase. I want to be a church that makes history. 
I want us to be a people that, that make history. There are some that just kind of float down the river of life and they really don't make any difference. I want us to be a church that, that impacts our community, that impacts our, our peninsula, that changes the thousands of lives. The people who come to us who don't know Jesus, we introduce them and we grow them in that. We save and strengthen marriage. We, we love and care for kids. I want us to be that kind of a church. <clears throat> and but, but not for the sake of glory, not for the sake of pounding our chest and saying, look at the good things that we are doing. We don't need glory. Frankly, this church has gotten more, more spotlight, more headlines, more glory than any church ever needs. We've got enough of that. We're, we're doing this because this is what spirit-filled, all-in, generous disciples do. That's what we are about. When we think back to Acts chapter 2, I talked on it last week. The account of that first, uh, the first snapshot of the early church. When those people gathered in that upper room and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and all the exciting things that were going to transpire, one of them didn't turn to the others and say, you know what? I think we're going to make history here. I think we're going to make history here. I, I think 2,000 years from now, they'll still be talking about us. I bet they might even write a book about us. They weren't saying any of that. They were just so excited about the risen Christ and so empowered by the the, the spirit of Jesus living within them that they just went about doing the work of the church and, oh, by the way, along the way, they did make history. And they did get a book written about them. And they are still talking about them 2,000 years later. That's the kind of history I want us to make because that's what the spirit inspires us to be. So over the coming weeks... We're going to do a journey through Matthew. I love this gospel because there are these high water moments in the lives of the disciples that, that you don't find in, in the other gospels necessarily. So we're going to look at each of these kind of touchstone moments and we're going to see how Jesus took these green, raw recruits and he transformed them, poured into them, empowered them to the point that they were sitting in that upper room in Acts chapter 2, ready to turn the world upside down. And this morning, we are going to start at the beginning. We are going to start uh, where, with the, where Jesus began with his disciples, and which, by the way, he starts with all of us as disciples. Every single one of us starts in the same place, and that's this, the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus. Sometimes people think that, the, that my walk in Christ began when I decided to follow Jesus. That's not what we believe here. We believe that our discipleship of Jesus began when Jesus decided to follow us when he called us to himself, and then we responded. So I want you to hear about the very first call of Jesus to the very first disciples. It comes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. You can turn there if you wish, or you can just listen and then turn after I'm done sharing this with you. But I want you to listen to the call of the first disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee... Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, casting a net into the sea, because, for they were fishermen. And he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately, they left their boat, and they left their father, 
and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, may we hear your call uh, to us today, a call that persists, a a call that is persistent. May we respond with the same courageous, selfless enthusiasm that these early disciples did. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to set this story in context. For 30 years, Jesus spent... uh, he spent it in anonymity in the little town, the little podunk town of Nazareth. He had taken over his father's carpentry shop, um, presumably because Joseph died when he was young. He was taking responsibility for caring for his mom and all of his younger brothers and sisters. And so he kind of labored away. I bet he was a great carpenter, but he labored away there for 30 years. But then the call of God came, and he makes his way down south to near Jerusalem uh, on the shore of the Jordan River. He meets there his cousin, John, John the Baptist, and Jesus was baptized, and uh, we are told that after his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in bodily form, and he heard the encouraging words of his father expressing his love and his pride in him. And then we are told that Jesus was driven by that same Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. And so he does this uh, battle with the, with the devil right at the beginning of, of his public ministry. And of course, the devil gets his butt handed to him and, and, uh, and he run, packs it in and, and uh, he runs away. And with that, then Jesus, we are told, moves up and settles down on the northwest coast of Galilee in a little beautiful town called Capernaum. And it is in Capernaum that Jesus begins his ministry. And, and, and Matthew simply tells us this, he began to preach the gospel. He began to preach the gospel. Now, it is at that point where all that context has been set, it is at that point that we read the text, that we read the text that I just recited for you earlier. In other words, before a single sermon is quoted, before a single parable has been taught, before we see any healing, any exorcisms, any spectacular works that we really came to associate with the ministry of Jesus, before any of that, the very first thing that Jesus does is to call these individuals, these four brothers, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, one by one, inviting them to leave behind all that matters to them and to begin to follow him. And it is only when he's got this posse that he begins to do the things that we are that we know to be spectacular ministry stuff. Only when they are with him, learning, following him along. In fact, the very next text kind of describes the stuff that we would be most familiar with. I just want you to listen to the next part of the passage, Matthew 4 and 23. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond Jordan. I want you to notice that phrase, great crowds followed him. It is the case that in the early years of, early days of his ministry, great crowds followed him. 
Gospel of Mark tells us that the city streets of Capernaum were so packed with people that you couldn't even get through. They had to actually crowd surf one guy through just to get him dropped down through a hole in the, in the roof in order that the guy could be healed. Remember that story? So there were great crowds. They were enamored. And you might think, well, that would have made a lot of sense. It's a way for him to leverage himself, get the biggest group of people together possible, teach them the stuff they need to know, and turn them loose. But that's not how Jesus worked. He did not start with the crowds, as a matter of fact. He started with these personal invitations, these calls, one by one by one by one. And there's another one that we have an account of that comes only in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And this is an autobiographical account because here Matthew, who's writing the gospel, describes his own call, the call of Matthew. This is, this is how he captures it. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And then by the next chapter, Jesus has filled his slate. He's got a slate of 12 apostles that are following him. We don't have any other details about the calls of the other seven. But I'll bet you a dime to a donut, every one of them went the same way. Jesus looked some man right in the eye and he said, Philip. I want you to follow me. Thomas, you old doubter, I want you to follow me. Bartholomew, Bart, I want you to follow me. Simon, you zealot, stop assassinating Roman soldiers, which is what the zealots did. I want you to follow me. Judas, this is your moment. This is your chance. I want you to follow me. One by one, Jesus spoke to the hearts, looked them in the eye, and invited them to follow him. Here's what strikes me about the Gospels, all of them in this. It is not the crowds that made history. It was those who were called out of the crowds that made history. Let me say it again. It is not the crowds that made history. It was those who were called out of the crowds that made history. And it's not like the crowds didn't experience some pretty spectacular stuff. The very next chapter, the crowds are going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a chapter after that, the, the crowds are, are, are going to be fed by miraculous fish and miraculous bread. The crowds watched as Jesus uh, healed people, as Jesus raised people from the dead. They even watched as Jesus spectacularly cast evil spirits out of poor, tormented souls. So it's not like the crowds didn't experience spectacular stuff, but the crowds never, it was never the crowds that made history. It was those who were called out of them. In fact, as you go farther into the gospel and you discover that Jesus is becoming less and less popular, less and less politically correct, you find the crowds beginning to thin. They kind of slink away because to be associated with Jesus isn't cool anymore. At one point, in fact, Jesus says to the disciples, are you guys going to leave too? Because everyone else had had blown town. Are you guys going to leave too? And it came to its worst on Good Friday when it was the crowds, in fact, who called, if you recall, they called for the death of Jesus. They said, give us that murderer Barabbas instead, and, and, and we want you to crucify Jesus. Perhaps some of the very same crowd who only days before were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, as Jesus made his way down into the city. It was not the crowds that made history. 
It was those who were called out of the crowds that made history, those ill-equipped, irritable, uh, inadequate souls as they might have perceived themselves. Something happened, though, when they heard Jesus call their name. They, they looked around, and, and they realized that Jesus was looking right at them. And with that glance, with that voice, they were willing to set aside all that mattered to them, their means of making a, a living, their, their most precious possessions, even relationships. Father? They were willing to set that aside. And by the way, Jesus gave it back to them, but they didn't know that at the time. So they set all of this aside, and they, they followed the invitation of the master when he said, follow me, follow me. Interestingly, though, not everyone. Can you think of someone who didn't follow Jesus when he invited them? The call of Jesus was powerful. It apparently was not irresistible. Because Matthew tells us of another guy. He describes him as, as a rich, young ruler. Have you ever heard that? This, this guy, well, he would have been like the first millennial. I mean, he was, he was smart. He was wealthy. He was accomplished. He was, he was principled. He was moral. I mean, if you were to look at a, at a guy that would make kind of the picture-perfect disciple, this was your guy. But Jesus saw into his heart and saw something else. He saw that this guy was addicted to his money. And so Jesus asked him to do something that he didn't necessarily ask others to do. He said, I want you to sell everything you have, and then you can follow me. Remember what happened? He went away. In fact, we are told that he went away sad because he had a lot of money. It was too much to ask. The other interesting thing about that story is we are told that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. It is a sad thing indeed when someone whom Jesus loves, who invites him to follow him, chooses not to because the price is too high. And this was a sad moment where they said no, where this person said no. So here's my point, beloved. On our journey to becoming the disciples, the kind of disciples that make history in both great ways and small ways, it always begins in every case in the same way. It it does not begin with a generic call of Jesus. He doesn't say, come on, come all, or as as Megan's people in Tennessee would say, come y'all. It doesn't doesn't start there. It begins on a one-on-one invitation of Jesus to you and to you and to you. It's personalized. He knows who you are, knows what your gifts are, and he says, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Will you follow me? That's how it goes. The problem is it's easy it's easy to uh, dodge the call of Christ, especially in a big crowd. Uh, on, on a Sunday morning when we come together, we, we might sense that we're hearing the call of the Spirit who's saying, you know what, there's stuff you've got to pr- repent of. There's stuff you've got to say to God, I'm sorry for that. Or you've got to give up that, uh, your shyness and, and, and sign up for a life group. Or you might hear the call that says, you've got to go forward and ask for prayer from the elders. Or you gotta, you got to ex- ex- accept the invitation to go to Haiti or to teach Sunday school. Or maybe to sell some of your stuff and give it away. Then we hear that call coming to us. We sense the Spirit is calling that. And you know what the tendency of people in a large crowd is to do? To assume that that's the call for the person next to you. Right? It's, it's, it's to point to Gene and say, Gene, boy, you really need to hear this message. Pastor's preaching this for you. It's pointing to Andrew and saying, Andrew, the, man, I, if ever there was a sermon that was for you, this is the one for you. God's calling you. Do you know, how often do we sit in church on a Sunday morning? We hear a sermon said, man, there's someone that's got to hear that. And, and I mean, that is right. That is a sermon for them. 
And, and little do we realize that, the, that Jesus' eyes are locked on us and the Spirit is speaking to us. It is a call to us, not to Gene, not to Andrew, but to Brian. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for, for doing that. The problem is we like to hide in the crowd, especially this crowd. We like to assume that when a call goes out, when the Spirit speaks, that it's an invitation to someone else. We assume that someone else will respond. We assume that someone else will take care of whatever it needs taking care of. Surely someone else can do that. Sometimes that's because of indifference. Sometimes it's because, frankly, we don't care enough. We aren't really sold out for the vision, aren't sold out for the mission. We don't really think that it's our church in that way. It's someone else's problem. So that's an issue. But sometimes, more often, I think it's a sense of inadequacy where we look around and say, but gosh, that guy's so much smarter than me. That woman is so much more beautiful than me. That person is so much better resourced than I am. And so we say, don't take me, God. Here, this is the person who's got the wealth, the looks, the talent, the gifts. That's the one that you must plan on using and and I'm just going to keep hiding. You're beginning to understand, I hope, the scope of this initiative of beyond these walls your your hope i be, i hope you're beginning to understand how if we have an opportunity to free up resources that could change the landscape of this city and this this peninsula for years and years to come i hope you're beginning to understand the the, the magnitude of a of a task of raising five million dollars over three years that's a big deal and all of these things matter but could i just remind you what i told you last week and what you will hear week by week of what our number one goal for this initiative is do you remember what it is exactly right 100 percent participation would you say that with me please that is our highest goal. That means that no one who considers this their church home is out there saying, well, I wonder who's going to take care of that. I wonder who's got the deep pockets and is going to write the big check and take care of that. No one's out there saying, it's you, it's you, Gene, it's you, Andrew, it's you. They're saying, no, this is for me. What I have, what I can, I'm going to do. I want to be a part of this. That's our highest hope that everyone who considers this their church home. And by the way, that means I'm not talking to you visitors. So please relax, you deep pucker. This is, this, if you're visiting with us, you're just our, our guest. It's a good chance for you to hear our hearts and hear us have some conversations about family business, but you are our guest. But if you consider this to be your church home, our number one dream and hope is that from the wealthiest to the poorest, from the oldest to the youngest, we will listen for the call of Christ upon our lives and we will say, I'm in. Whatever Jesus calls me to do, I'm in. Remember those slivers that I passed around to you? Where are they? I want them back. You got them? All four? How about up there? Did we make it through? Oh, you guys kiped them, didn't you? I hope they're up there somewhere. Well, do you, do you know what you were looking at there and passing around? Those are called lepton. Lepton. They are a, a, they were 2,000 years old. They are a first century Roman coin. It was worth about six minutes of a daily wage. But you know that coin by a different name. Yes, that is a widow's mite. 
Remember the story? Jesus was in the temple with his, his um, disciples and they saw a, a poor widow come up and there was a big uh, horn that people made offerings in. It was intentionally designed to be a horn so that when you dropped hard money in, it would make a real clanging sound and make a big deal of this. But Jesus watched as this poor widow went over after somebody who just dropped in, clunk, 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 she walks in with her two little widow's mind. She goes, tink. And the only time that Jesus ever does this, he brags on what someone has given. This insignificant amount that won't amount to anything, but Jesus said, but she gave everything she had. He brags on her, not for the size of the gift, but for the heart that was behind the gift. So that's what you were looking at, the widow's might. And you know, it makes me mindful of the people that have repeated that story down through our life. I want to tell you a story of a woman from our church. How many have heard me share about Bernice Cameron? Any? A handful of you. Well, good, because I love to tell this story, and I'm going to tell it again, because she's one of my saints. She's on the Hall of Fame wall of Chapel Hill, as far as I'm concerned. Bernice showed up about 30 years ago, shortly after I arrived. In fact, she joined the church in the same class that my wife-to-be, Cindy, was in. And Bernice uh, came to church every Sunday dressed in the same pink jacket, the same pink pillbox hat, like Jackie Kennedy had worn, well, two decades earlier. Bernice didn't wear this because it was fashionable. She wore it because it was the only decent church clothes she had, because Bernice was as poor as a church mouse. She lived in what we might call a tar paper shack. It was a dump, and she had nothing. But Bernice loved the Lord. She loved the Word. She loved her church. She was here faithfully. One year, our deacons decided to do what our deacons are so good at, to bless her. And so they wrote a $100 check and gave it to her at Christmas time so that she might have a really a great Christmas. That was a lot of money back then, 100 bucks. The next Sunday in the plate, we received a check from Bernice Cameron for $10. And I called her that week. I said, Bernice, why would you give back such a big chunk of the gift that we gave to you? She said, Pastor, the Lord has blessed me with such a gracious gift. How could I not respond by writing a tithe check back to the church for the kindness the Lord has poured out upon me? I have a lot of giving stories that I could share That is my favorite one. And as long as I've got my noodle, I will never forget Bernice and what she did until the day I die. But the spirit of Bernice actually continues to this day. This is one of the things that's most exciting about this initiative. Last week after we launched it, and in the the week to come, I I heard all kinds of encouraging words about this and the, the rightness of it, the confirmation of it. But the three that were most, the greatest blessing to me were, were for three widows. For instance, last Sunday after I preached about the early church that sold their possessions and their belongings and, and gave to all as any had need, I went out and I was approached by one of the widows in our church. She said, you know, I'm selling a piece of land and I want to give a part of that to the church for my Beyond These Walls initiative. Can you tell me how to do that? I said, I will sure try. Later in the week, I got a text from another widow who still works for a living. She said, I, you know, I, I, I give 12% of everything I make back to the Lord's work here at Chapel Hill. But I'm so excited about this that I'm going to 
talk to my financial advisor this week about how, what investments I can sell in order to participate because I'm all in. And then this one is an email that I got. She wrote, I'm on a widow's pension. I pay full tithe, that's 10%, and I supplement my sister's income. I also support other ministries. Lord willing, I will participate in Beyond These Walls. It'll be the lowest line on the chart, but I will commit in Jesus' name. Isn't that awesome? And it's not just our, our older folks that are leading the way. I'm inspired by what I hear happening among our youth. Some of our middle schoolers apparently have already turned in their pledge card. And I know of, of one high school student who has started a little business so that she can fulfill the pledge that she's already made. She is t- taking old furniture, painting it, and selling it on eBay to make her pledge. I know of another high school student who is so shy, she's taking a class on how to interview for a job because she wants to get a job, get past her shyness, get a job so that she can do her part for the campaign, for this initiative. That inspires me. 100% participation. I, I hope it inspires you too. Obviously, we will need larger gifts and we're still waiting and praying for those to come in. But if at the end of the day, every person in this church has responded to this call, the call of Jesus upon them and no one else, if we have 100% participation in an initiative, a vision that will take us out beyond our walls and into our community and into this this region as we never have done before, if we do that, then I believe that God will have already done something great in the hearts of our people. So may it be so. Let us pray. God, thank you for these encouraging (laughs) testimonies from people who have less and are so excited to do more. That inspires me, and I hope it inspires all of us as we we focus on what is you want us to do. Lord, you've heard the prayers of of your elders. You've heard our longing to be the kind of church you want us to be. You have, we believe, inspired us to to look not to our own needs at this season, but to look beyond ourselves to the, to the community and to our peninsula as never before. So God, I pray that you will do what only you can do. You will call each person, you will inspire each of us, and that together we will do something that will make history, not for our gain or for our glory, but for the love of Christ, in whose name we pray. for all.